Hi, this is Kendall Boyson, professional life and recovery coach, and you're listening to Encouragementology, the practice of instilling hope. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. On this show, we're going to seek to understand, putting aside our biases, limiting beliefs, and exploring our experiences to find common ground. Initial judgment is tough to overcome, since part of it is built in for protection. What happens next is really up to you. How willing are you to open up your mind and heart and explore a person to find common ground? Is it easier for you to live behind your protective wall of preconceived assumptions? Sometimes it is, but it won't serve you in the long run. Oh, the joy you're missing out, not to mention the learning, expansion of ideas, and the adoption of new and exciting concepts. Don't worry, there's time to turn it around and recommit to re-examining your parameters. Let's find out where those thoughts come from as we seek to understand. I would consider myself a very open, trusting, and flexible person, yet I too find myself judging people harshly and unfairly. It's easy to create lanes or categories for the people you meet and force them into these before you truly understand the person, what they stand for, and what their intentions are. Oh, I like this person. We're going to get along great. Hmm, I'm on the fence. I'm not really sure we're going to get along at all. And how about the category, no way? How quickly do you come to that conclusion? Could we all do a little better? Okay, good. Can we all commit here and now to seek to understand? Maggie Wool helps us understand how to find common ground with anyone. A quick and easy guide found at betterup.com. Whether you're talking with someone you know or with a stranger, you won't always agree on everything. We all come from different backgrounds. As a result, we see things differently and hold different beliefs. But this doesn't mean it's impossible to agree or at least be amicable and respectful. By finding common ground, you can see eye to eye with someone else for a moment. It then becomes easier to see eye-to-eye on other topics you previously didn't agree on at all. It doesn't mean that you'll end up changing your mind or that the other person will, but you will realize that there are areas of agreement, and you might walk away feeling less diametrically opposed. You'll be more able to work together toward common goals. Let's explore what is common ground and how you can use it as a communication tool to become better at conflict resolution. Common ground is a topic, opinion, or interest that two or more people can agree about. Even when two people disagree on something, common ground can help bring them together. Too often, whether at work or in life, we focus on our differences. It's easy to fixate on the parts of someone's argument or belief that we disagree with. We don't even notice all the parts we do agree with. When you find common ground with someone, you don't have to agree on everything. You have overlapping interests or topics of agreement with the other person. But there is still ground you don't share or agree on. Here's an example. Let's say you're debating with your peer at work about organizing a retreat for your team. They believe the retreat should focus on leadership skills. 
You believe it should focus on conflict resolution. But you both agree that the retreat should include mental health awareness. This opinion is the common ground between the two of you. Once you spend a few minutes discussing this area of agreement, you might both be more open to hearing the other's opinion about the ideas where you differ. Reaching common ground isn't always easy, but it does have benefits. Like bringing people together. The common ground approach can bring people together during a conflict. When you focus on what you have in common, you can see eye to eye. This can help you feel more at ease with someone who doesn't agree with you. You can develop empathy for each other. Making friends more easily. When you're able to find common ground, you'll also be better at making friends and getting along with others. That's because you're able to go out of your way to find common interests. This will help you develop closer bonds with people you know. Reaching common ground helps you go from seeing the other person as someone who is different from you to seeing yourselves as a unified us. It helps you avoid echo chambers. Finding common ground also helps disrupt ideological echo chambers. Echo chambers are when everyone's views sound the same as everyone else's. For instance, 35% of people say that most of their close friends share their political views. When you find common ground with someone who doesn't agree with you, you open yourself up to hearing other opinions and points of view instead. Let's explore how you can find common ground with people, whether it's someone you know or a complete stranger. Finding common ground with a stranger can help you grow your network. First, avoid prying too much. Don't ask too many personal questions right away. It's okay to discuss something if the other person brought it up first. Next, analyze your current situation to find common ground. If you're both at a cafe, chances are you both like coffee. Find something about your current situation that could tell you something about the other person. Then, Ask them about it. Tell them you'd like to know more about their opinion on a subject. Just don't dive too deep into your own personal life. This can make the other person feel uneasy or uncomfortable. You can also use the power of storytelling to connect with the other person. The human experience has more common ground than not. Share stories about things you experienced in the past and how they made you feel. When you focus on how you feel, the other person may recognize situations in which they felt the same. Finally, embrace small talk. Even if you dislike small talk, it's important to stay engaged during this part of a conversation. Small talk helps find small bits of common ground before diving deeper into a conversation. The beauty of someone you know is that you have a history together. That history usually provides some common ground. If you have a disagreement with someone you know, tell them that you want to find common ground. Be upfront about why you want to find it. Because the area of disagreement matters to you, but the relationship also matters to you. Let them know how you feel about the current conflict. Then you can ask them if they want to do the same. Acknowledge your differences first. 
The truth is that you don't have the same life experience as the other person. As a result, you don't hold the same beliefs, and that's okay. Acknowledge this instead of leaving it as the elephant in the room. During your conversation, pay attention to how the other person is feeling and be respectful of how they feel at all times. Here's an example. If the other person seems uncomfortable, ask them if they're okay. If it turns out they feel uneasy, maybe it's time for a breather. You should also show interest in what they have to say. Use body language to show you're engaged. Make eye contact. Keep your arms uncrossed and smile. Dig deeper into common ground questions when you find a topic you're both interested in. Ask a follow-up question to find out more about the other person's experience. Like, oh, you also visited France? What was it like? Ask open-ended questions without judgment and try not to leap ahead with assumptions. What is the difference between negotiation and finding common ground? Let's dive in. Negotiation is a way to settle differences and find agreement. A negotiation can lead to an agreement or a compromise between two parties, but it also avoids falling into a dispute or argument. Finding common ground can help outside of negotiations, but during negotiation, it's a tool to find places where two or more people agree. Common ground meditation makes it more likely to find an outcome that satisfies both parties. At first, both parties come from different positions. You need to find a way to come to an agreement. This may be difficult at first. If there's no common ground, there's no space to come together and bring your points of view closer to each other. On the other hand, common ground narrows the playing field. Because you understand each other a little better, you may be able to reach a compromise more easily. Here is how you can negotiate with respect and find consensus during a debate. First, research the topic. When you research the topic, you'll be more prepared to explain your point of view. But researching the topic will also help you understand the other person's point of view. Try to see from every angle. You see things one way, but the other person comes from another perspective. Try to see from this perspective. You'll consider facts and opinions you may not think about otherwise. Stay calm during the conversation. If you get emotional, take a deep breath and count to 10. When you let your emotions speak, you won't make points that are as rational. Likewise, pay attention to the other person. If you see they're getting upset, Offer to take a break. Be aware of your biases. Most people have biases about other people. This could be about their race, gender, life choices, sexuality, or anything. Instead of pretending you don't have biases, acknowledge them. You'll be more aware and you can take actions to counteract those biases. Avoid ad hominem attacks. Using ad hominem attacks means attacking the person making the argument instead of the argument itself. Focus on the issue at the heart of the discussion, not someone's personality. You can bring up arguments against an issue, but avoid attacking the other person directly. Don't point fingers or blame the other person. 
This will not help them see your point of view. Be clear with what you want. Beating around the bush won't help with a negotiation. Be upfront. Be calm and non-confrontational. Speak your mind clearly. If you feel the other person isn't speaking clearly, ask them to clarify what they really want. It's important to know what's on the table for negotiation. Otherwise, both parties won't know what they're negotiating about. You don't have to agree with everyone, but finding common ground makes you more agreeable. Seeking common ground is a good exercise for developing your most human capabilities. Looking for common ground helps you practice empathy, imagination, and maybe even creativity. It requires listening and setting intentions. It also helps you stay open to possibility and see the world in a more forgiving light. You can build stronger relationships and learn a lot from others. Plus, learning how to find common ground can help you negotiate more effectively. How many chances do you give someone? Can you think about a time when you judge someone unfairly and they proved you wrong? Now, let's turn the tables. How often have you been judged unfairly before you've had a chance to thoroughly express yourself? Stinks, doesn't it? You can't control others, but what you can do is lead by example. Take the time to explore a person on more than one level. Maybe they were shy, nervous, intimidated, and right now kicking themselves for not being themselves in the moment. What could you ask someone to put them at ease and find common ground? I have to admit that sometimes I'm more concerned with my own first impression versus someone else's. It's okay. It's natural. Being self-aware is backing out and seeing the aerial view instead of what's right behind your eyes and in your peripheral. Imagine seeing a situation from your own two eyes and then putting on a pair of distorted lenses, your belief system. Let's learn more about how that affects what and how you see. Over at pathwaytohappiness.com, I found good information on your belief system and what that means for your life. Have you ever tried to change a habit, negative thought, or emotional reaction and struggled to make the change stick? If you struggled to make changes, it's probably because you didn't address the underlying belief system driving that habit, thought, or emotion. Belief systems affect every area of your life. Beliefs affect most of your emotions, thoughts you think, productivity, relationships, and attitude. Your belief system will determine what kind of decisions you make for yourself in terms of health, food, exercise, financial independence, happiness, smart relationships, or whether you'll create chaos and drama in these areas. If you feel like your life, emotions, or your mind is out of control, then what is it that has control? Is it your beliefs? Most of which are unconscious that have control over your mind. Unless you become aware and begin to take charge of your beliefs, your beliefs will continue to have control of your thoughts and emotions. Here's an example of how beliefs in your mind can take a small thing and spiral it into a major event. Your partner leaves a dirty dish on the counter or some other pet peeve like not taking out the trash. You become upset 
really upset. Your mind goes through a series of associations over the next five minutes or five hours. It creates a chain of narratives linking one thought to another, leading your nervous system to spiral in emotions. It might go something like this. They left the dirty dishes out again. I've told them a dozen times that's not okay. It just makes more sense to wash it or put it in the dishwasher right away. They don't listen to me. It's like they don't respect me. Do I have to clean everything myself? I'm the only one that cleans up around here. If they can't respect and appreciate me, then I'm not cared about. I can't live with someone who treats me this way. In a short shifting of narratives, our mind has associated leaving the dirty dishes out to not being listened to or respected. This is associated to not being loved and that we should consider exiting the relationship. These are powerful narratives. Beliefs propel the story from facts about the dishes to emotional meaning about the relationship and value. With awareness, you can move your perspective and be the observer of your mind and not get emotionally caught up into the spiral. If you don't have self-awareness, you get taken for an emotional ride and are compelled to act on those emotions. In this way, we're slaves to our beliefs and the emotional narratives that drive in our mind. Breaking free of the traps in your mind begins with acknowledging that your mind has you boxed up in your beliefs because beliefs are the source of those thoughts and emotions. Those emotions and the program of thoughts happen without your choice or even your consent. How? Your belief system has a mind of its own. Your rational mind will say they or the situation did something to make you respond that way, but that's a lie. On another day, when you're feeling different, the same thing might not bother you. It also assumes that cause was completely outside of you. If that were the case, then everyone would respond the same way to the same event. People don't respond the same way all the time to an event, yet they attribute their emotions or feelings to the event. Saying that your thoughts, emotions, or reactions were caused by someone or something outside of you is one of the most disempowering beliefs you can have. It's also false. Your belief system affects how much you enjoy and how much you suffer emotionally. Is a joke funny or offensive? People interpret jokes with a different sense of humor and perspective. Each person processes the joke through their own beliefs and sees the funny through the lenses of those beliefs. You can also have different beliefs that are active or dormant at different times. This often depends on the mood. If you're in a good mood, the joke or the person is perceived as funny. If you're tired or frustrated, the person or joke might be annoying. Even within yourself, you change the filters of your beliefs and how you experience any event in the world. You can perceive how your different beliefs are active depending on your emotional state at the time. If you're depressed, you'll have a set of beliefs congruent with depressed thoughts about yourself and views of the world. If you're optimistic, you'll have a set of beliefs congruent with that mindset. There are similar beliefs happening in experiencing jealousy, 
anxiety, and anger. Another person with a different perspective and a different set of beliefs will interpret the same situation differently. They may not get angry or jealous at all. You might get angry and jealous in one moment and later feel that you've overreacted. This is because different beliefs are active and dormant at different times within you. Your angry emotional beliefs will interpret that they were justified. When you calm down, your rational mind has different beliefs and will think that you've overreacted. Most people operate with conflicting beliefs and this creates internal emotional turmoil. Even when you believe you're consciously choosing, brain scans have shown your mind is likely making decisions at a level you're unconscious of. Reacting emotionally is made instantly, emotionally, and silently within the belief system. Beliefs are like preset programs in the mind that launch emotional reactions when activated. Your beliefs interpret a situation automatically and gives your nervous system a response of emotion and justification without asking you if it wants to consider alternatives. Your first emotions and words might be accusatory, blaming, or defensive before you ask any questions for clarification. This is your belief system running your behavior and your life at times. Your belief system is making interpretations in your mind that create emotions and behaviors, and then you act them out. This is fine if you're going to change lanes on the freeway. It's not if you're overreacting in a relationship. When you have a reaction and feel that your partner has too close a friendship with their ex or someone at work, your belief system is calculating much more than you're consciously aware of. Your conscious mind might be aware of some social media activity or texting, but your unconscious mind might be programming your emotional reaction and accusations based on things like an experience of your past relationships, what close friends and families have experienced in relationships, your insecurities, the emotional security and self-soothing capability you developed as a child in an unhealthy attachment style. Beliefs about your partner's gender stereotype. What you read in a Cosmo article online. Self-worth and self-judgment thoughts in your head affecting your emotions. The fear of being alone. Self-confidence and feelings of your own emotional security. Beliefs about what is appropriate in social behavior. Relationships you have with exes as a measure of what is appropriate. How tired you are, which will affect your ability to suppress your emotional responses and think more clearly. Fidelity and trust your parents have in each other growing up as a relationship model. And 20 or 50 other relationship experiences that inform your belief system. Your rational, conscious mind doesn't take all this history into account. But your belief system has stored a great deal of emotional memories to draw from. If you ask yourself, why did I overreact? You probably don't have a good answer. You might have an excuse, but not a good satisfying answer. That's because your rational mind doesn't include the belief system into its assessment. Until you do, you'll miss out on the causes of your reactions. If you miss out on understanding the real cause of your behavior, then you'll miss out on how to change it. 
Your belief systems affects every area of your life. Most importantly, they will affect your happiness and misery. They're behind emotional outbursts, anxiety, depression, insecurity, financial decisions, intimacy issues, commitment, and effectiveness in communication. Your beliefs determine whether you feel worthy enough to be happy or whether you feel it's even possible to make changes. If your belief system is programmed with, this is just the way I am and I'll always be this way, then it's precluding you from considering options that would help you have a life you want. But guess what? Belief systems are changeable. If you effectively address your belief systems, you can change any thought pattern, emotional state, and behavior you wish. What changes would you like to make in your life? Notice how your mind can give thoughts about whether the change is possible or not. There are already beliefs in your mind about whether it can happen or it won't. There may be beliefs with hopes and beliefs with doubts and fears about changes being possible. Take a moment to notice how your mind reacts to the idea of change being possible. These are pre-programmed responses of beliefs in your mind. Your mind has beliefs about changing beliefs. It will have beliefs of hope and fear about the self-mastery course working or not working, even if it doesn't know anything about it. This awareness of this program resistance of thoughts is the first step to making changes. The next step is skepticism about these doubts and fears, trying to make decisions for you based on imagined assumptions. Awareness and skepticism are two critical elements to changing beliefs. I'm sure you've heard a lot about self-talk and the critical need for positive versus negative self-talk. But have you explored where it's coming from? It's important to understand the origin of these thoughts before you can strive to change them. Believing strongly in a limitation will skew how you see others. What if you explored that belief and found it to be untrue? In fact, the opposite. Can you imagine how that might change the way you see yourself and others? Well, what are we waiting for? Let's shatter false limitations. Let's go back to Maggie Wool for a little more insight as she insists, don't let limiting beliefs hold you back. Learn to overcome yours found at betterup.com. I'm not really a numbers person. I'm not good in front of an audience. I'm not the type of person who leads a team. Seems like a good idea, but I'll probably mess it up. I usually do. I've never been a runner. Taking risk doesn't work out for me. Maybe you've heard this from a friend or a coworker. Maybe you've had thoughts and said it yourself. Whether it's fears or just our ideas about how the world works, baked in ideas shape how we behave and how we interpret what happens. These limiting beliefs can hold us back from trying or undermine our efforts and relationships. Often they start from a young age, but also become more set over time. You become a person who holds yourself back. But why? 
How does a person grow from a fearless kid into someone afraid of failure, avoiding challenges and learning opportunities, or constantly doubting yourself? Limiting beliefs can form as part of anyone's natural development from childhood through young adulthood and beyond. It's time to learn about your self-limiting beliefs and how you can overcome them. A limiting belief is a thought or state of mind that you think is the absolute truth and stops you from doing certain things. These beliefs don't always have to be about yourself either. They could be about how the world works, ideas, and how you interact with people. You have to be really arrogant to go into sales. The only way you get promoted is to give up having a life. You have to look out for number one if you want to get ahead. You can't trust anybody. If you win, I lose. Limiting beliefs can change your life, but not always for the better. They create self-awareness that stops you from chasing after your dreams, forming healthy relationships with people, and creating change in any other area of your life. Having primarily negative beliefs puts boundaries and limitations on things in our lives and keeps us within our comfort zones. Limiting beliefs can sometimes act as a defense mechanism to protect ourselves from pain. Your subconscious could remember past negative experiences and try to prevent you from hurting yourself again. These subconscious boundaries could lead to negative emotions like imposter syndrome, anxiety, and procrastination. You might know what a limiting belief is, but not where it comes from. Your limiting beliefs come from plenty of different places. To overcome limiting beliefs, we first need to learn where they come from. So here are a few categories that can cause us to develop limiting beliefs. Family values and beliefs. Your parents and other family members taught you a set of beliefs and values, starting before you were even conscious of it. We start developing our core beliefs when we're young, based first on what we learn from our family, whether they transmit these beliefs purposely or not. A grandparent may dwell on the differences between rich people and everyone else. A father might emphasize godliness and responsibility in a way that makes childhood transgressions loom large. A mother might push her children to work hard to succeed in a white-collar profession as the key to a better life. More times than not, these beliefs were their own that were passed on to you. Life experiences. Any experience that you have in life gives you a feeling to remember. These conclusions that you draw from experiences dictate what you choose to do in the future. Maybe you drove a stick shift car and hated it. Next time you have the opportunity to drive a manual vehicle, you might refuse because you remember hating your previous experience. Education. Whoever you're learning from, may they be teachers, family, or friends, impact what you believe to be true. When someone's job is to share information and beliefs, you absorb them. If the person who's teaching you is someone you admire and have a lot of respect for, you're more inclined to believe everything they say. Limiting beliefs are present in all areas of our lives. 
Here are five examples of some of the most common limiting beliefs about ourselves, the world, and life in general. I'm too old to go back to school. I've missed my chance to get my education, so why bother trying now? My personality type doesn't match a lot of other people's, so I'm never going to find someone to be in a relationship with. If I get a divorce, nobody will want to be with me again because I've already been married. I'm too quiet and slow to be a successful entrepreneur. I should give up now. I don't have time to start a new hobby because I'm so busy. We all develop habits that become automatic and we don't question them. But when you're trying to overcome limiting beliefs, you need to take a step back and think about your daily life. How do you practice self-talk? What's your reaction when you make mistakes? Here are three ways that can help you identify your limiting beliefs. Reflect on your behavior. Evaluating your behavior can help show you what causes your limited beliefs. Think back to when someone hurt your feelings and you needed to speak up for yourself. What was your reaction? Did you speak up or did you walk away from the situation without letting the person know how you felt? Situations like this can show you that you might have a limiting belief that you should avoid conflict at all costs, but that negatively impact your relationships. Write down your beliefs. Try writing down your general and detailed beliefs, the personal ones, the vague ones, the ones that you feel very strongly about. You can categorize them by sections like family, relationships, and health. Without thinking too hard about which beliefs you write down, it gives you a chance to look them over once you're done. This way, you can identify which ones are your own limiting beliefs. Make a list of things that challenge you. There could be things that routinely challenge you in life that you avoid that could be limiting beliefs. So ask yourself, what limiting beliefs are you holding on to? Write down your challenges and look for any patterns. This will offer you a chance to think of self-improvement strategies for specific areas of your life. I hope you've been able to gain a new perspective and are excited about the possibilities that are opening up for you. There is so much to gain from our connections with others when we seek to understand. Take the time to listen and explore all avenues with your connections, professionally and personally. Remember, share your gifts as well to let others see more than just your first impression. Now, we've talked about personal and we've talked about professional, but we haven't really addressed relationships, couples. So at Couples Counseling ATL's YouTube channel, I found finding common ground in conflict and accepting influence. Let's take a listen. An important way that master couples know how to manage conflict well and avoid flooding is that they really work towards dealing with regular everyday solvable problems by finding common ground and accepting influence quickly. So what I want you to know about this is that accepting influence helps each of you to find what part of my partner's position can I understand and agree with. Even if I don't understand all of what they're 
saying or asking for, or even if I can't agree to all of the things that they're asking for, what part can I agree to? Because part of being a healthy, loving partner is to be as responsive as possible. You can't give your partner everything they ever want, but more often than not, being there for them is what builds trust and shows them that you care about something just because they care about it. So for just a regular day conflict that's not gridlocked, you know, learning how to accept influence really means, you know, you as a partner learning that sharing and relinquishing influence is an asset to your relationship. Um, And that, you know, a healthy relationship is not a dictatorship where one person, you know, makes all the roles and one person just, you know, follows commands. It's a it's a relationship where both people have preferences and needs and um, are able to express those and that both people have more often than not responsiveness from their partner. So this is a little bit harder statistically for men. Women are much more likely to accept influence, but in really happy heterosexual marriages, Um, The men who are able to accept influence are really, really advanced and are much more likely to have a long-term healthy relationship. So what you don't want to do is be the partner who, no matter what their partner asks for, finds some way of fighting with them about it rather than just responding. So in in a bad relationship, you would reject any attempt that your partner makes or request something for you to do, no matter how reasonable their request is. So for example, um, you might say, you know, hey, do you have to work late on Thursday night? You know, my mom is coming in this weekend and I could really use your help getting things ready. Ugh, what do you want me to do? Always kowtow to you? My plans are set and that's that. So the way that this partner responded to a very softened, reasonable request was to be defensive, to um, criticize, and to make an executive decision without consideration for what their partner is asking for. So that is um, not healthy, clearly. So accepting influence, what to do instead would be, again, if your partner made a reasonable request, um, you know, do you have to work late on Thursday night? Um, My mother's coming this weekend and I could really use your help getting things ready. A healthy partner would say something like, well, okay, but I do need to get things done on this report at work. Um, Would it work out for, for me to work Sunday afternoon after maybe your mom leaves? Do you see what happened? They took it in. They considered it. They still have their own feelings. They still have their own preferences. But instead of just flat out saying no or criticizing or mocking their partner for even asking, um, they tried to make a suggested, like another way that they could still be responsive or helpful in the way that their partner is asking. I really want you to remember the concept of yielding to win. From Gottman's research, we learned that um, you don't win an argument by countering everything your partner says. You know, so if you're going to act like a brick wall, things are only going to escalate. Um, What you have to do to win and to have a healthy relationship, 
to get more of what both of you want and need is to get your partner to start saying yes. And the only way to do that is to yield to the parts of your partner's point of view and argument that seem reasonable to you. So what happens then when you start yielding more and you start becoming more responsive and giving your partner more of what they need um, or what they're just preferring is that the issue starts to become something that both of you are working on together. And so that if you're able to give your partner more, they're much more likely to give you more and to be more reasonable and it becomes a very positive cycle. If you want to share Encouragementology with a friend who needs to know they're not alone in this journey of self-discovery, you can visit Encouragementology.com or anywhere you stream your content to receive this episode and all others. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram for additional encouragement throughout the week. So I challenge you, be slow to discount the importance and relevance of the connections you make. Take the time to explore your biases and judgments as you uncover and overcome your own limiting beliefs. Strive to be a connection others want to make. I know you can do it. Thank you for listening to Encouragementology with Kendall Boyson, where we find positive ways to handle some of life's challenges. I stumbled through until the path was clear. That's when I found.